got a lot in store for you. We'll be talking nations, states, empires, borders, and all things Christian nationalism. I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow Quarterly. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And if you haven't already, you should really catch up on our growing back catalog of episodes. Christian nationalism, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, What do we mean when we talk about Christian nationalism? Well, one thing we mean by Christian nationalism is a that we're talking about a term that lots of other people are talking about. And I'm not sure they're all talking about the same thing, but there's been this huge spate of books, you know, certainly since the election of Donald Trump. Uh, I'll put out a few. Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, uh, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, Uh, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, uh, by Kristen Cobas de Mez, which we've discussed on previous episodes of this podcast. Uh, but even going back, you know, to the grand old days, the early aughts, those innocent days, uh, 2006, Michelle Goldberg, the New York Times columnist, uh, published a book, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. This is something that people have been talking about for a while. Uh, and that's just in the U.S. context. Of course, there are Christian nationalisms in other places, too, Uh most recently, there's been little upticks of debate about the Christian nationalism represented by a figure like Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, so one thing we're talking about with Christian nationalism is just a thing that lots of other people are talking about. Right. Why are they talking about it? I'm not sure that they know what they're talking about. I think they're talking about it because there is a – it's a lot of people who are writing from the outside – um, who are not themselves obviously Christian nationalists, who are seeing something that feels scary to them and is in many cases actually genuinely scary. And they're trying to describe what it is that they're seeing. Um, a lot of times, you know, this is not the case with um, all of the books that you mentioned, but a lot of times there's a like deep lack of sympathy for Christianity as a potential positive thing in the world. Um, and in some cases, a deep lack of sympathy for nations as a potential positive thing in the world. And I sort of share that when it comes to questions of the nation state, although I'm ambiguous. Um, But one of the things that these books never seem to ask, because that's sometimes not what they're aimed at doing, is what is the alternative to this? Like, what is the good that this might be a distortion of? Or is there a good that this is a distortion of? Should church and state in the way that we can, you know, can now think of them, always and forever be completely separate. And what does that even mean? So I think, but without getting into careful definitions yet, um, and we should do that, mm-hmm. what I think a lot of people mean right now when they hear the word Christian nationalism is white people marching into the Capitol mm-hmm. with Confederate flags and crosses on January 6th mm-hmm. uh, and doing what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, showing that we own this nation, not those other people, um, as variously defined. Uh, Christian nationalism as a kind of tribal, Mm -hmm. ethnic identity. Uh, And I think that's actually pretty accurate to talk about that as a thing um, that has infected U.S. Christianity. And I kind of... I think we should stipulate right at the beginning of this, Susanna, 
it's not really useful for us to talk about anything outside of the United States right now, because I think there are Christian nationalisms that may have similarities to the U.S. Um, elsewhere. But that thing that we're talking about right now um, is something that is of most interest and concern in the United States. I would agree with you, except that I think that we also need to be able to look at maybe how this has worked out historically. Um, and so to, to say America is the sort of, um, the only thing to look at is actually one of the problems. And I think that being able to say America is a country like any other with, you know, certain religions represented in its, you know, makeup, um, can kind of dial down the temperature and also help us to be a little bit more clear headed when we're thinking about like, what's good, what's bad, like, how bad is this? What exactly makes it bad? Is there a good version? Um, so we don't need to talk about other manifestations of Christian nationalism across the world, right? You know, in this day and age, but I do think we need to be able to push outside the boundaries of America a little bit. No, that's fair enough. I just want to make sure that all those French Christian nationalists and Brazilian uh, Christian nationalists don't feel and, left out, and Ethiopian Christian nationalists don't call us up after this podcast and say you didn't talk about us. Fair. Um, or Canadian Christian nationalists, if they exist. I don't think they exist. In David Foster Wallace novels, yeah. Perhaps. There we go. So, American Christian nationalism. I mean, there's two pieces of, there's the Christian and there's the nationalism. And it's only Christian in a pretty specific sense. It is. So, you know, we talked about January 6th. There are other sort of, uh, I guess, I don't know, like symptoms of this. Um, Joe Biden most recently uh, quoted, I think, the prophet Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me, um, and put those words into the mouths of the U.S. military. Um, you know, when evil is roaming the world, the U.S. military has always said, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm not 100% sure that I would describe the work of the U.S. military in all of its um, activities around the world as necessarily the work of the Lord, although the soldiers themselves, I think there's great honor and service. Um sort of on a kind of more statistical level, half of all white American evangelicals and one quarter of all Americans of all stripes believe that the founding documents of America, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are inspired by God. Um, and earned. And yeah. <laughs> and there is, um, that's pretty nuts. I mean, that that is uh, obviously one could imagine divine inspiration in a number of ways. There are certain poems that you might say are divinely inspired, but I think people mean something more uh, sort of heavier than that. They tend to think of America as maybe in some sense God's unique protagonist in the world in the way that Israel was in the, in the Old Testament and in a way that I really think only the church can be said to be now. Um, and, you know, what America does for good or for ill, will be looked at by God and judged by God in the way that God was sort of keeping his eye on what Israel did for good or for ill in the Old Testament. 
And that I, I think, you know, if you believe that to a really substantial degree, um, that excludes that being the case for other countries, you are pushing into a, something that's probably a technical heresy. Um, so there is a batch of people who really believe that. I do not think that they tend to be people who have the best theology in, um, in all respects. You know, why be concerned about this? Is this just a talking head problem? I mean, one reason a lot of the people wrote books about it, right, was to explain the rise of, of populism, of populist conservatism, and specifically of, of Donald Trump, mm -hmm. right? And you have this big voting block that identifies as Christian mm -hmm. evangelicals uh, who do things like, you know, vote for hard border policies mm -hmm. and, I guess, prayer in schools and uh, who kind of use th this symbolism of Christianity as, as tribal maskets, right? Mm -hmm. um, crosses and Ten Commandments and uh, such like, mm -hmm. right? Um, Christmas nativity scenes uh, becoming a sort of symbolic battle, mm -hmm. uh, battle point. One of the best books that I looked at was uh, Taking America Back for God. I mentioned it before by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. One, uh, there are two sociologists, one in Indiana, one in Oklahoma. And they kind of... Uh, looked at it, I thought, quite dispassionately. And they were very careful to distinguish, quote, Christian and, quote, nationalism mm -hmm. from both actual Christianity and actual nationalism. Mm -hmm. One of the things I thought was most fascinating from their findings was that uh, those who identify with Christian nationalism, sociologically speaking, ha actually have quite different beliefs mm -hmm. and behaviors mm -hmm. than people who are devout Christians. Can you uh, say more about that? What were the examples? Well, so, and how do you define what is it about Christians? So they looked at people who, you know, go to church and uh, regularly and show strong engagement mm -hmm. with their religion. And one big one is immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, people who are really engaged with their religious tradition um, statistically tend to listen to the teachings of scripture about welcoming the stranger. We've talked about that before and to put a strong emphasis on helping the weak. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas those who identified as Christian nationalists did not obviously. Uh, so that's one example. And there's, there's others, uh, you know, when it comes to economic justice to, uh, racism, mm -hmm. where those who identify as Christian nationalists have much harder mm -hmm. positions of us versus them than those who tended to be deeply immersed into their religious traditions. And obviously, these are all generalizations, mm -hmm. right? But they were able, as sociologists, to see a, you know, a statistically significant difference mm -hmm. in behavior. And I think that's really interesting because it it helps bring out what you were just saying, Susanna, mm -hmm. from a theological point of view that. The kind of Christianity that is forming a part of this Christian nationalism, American Christian nationalism, is really not a question of am I theologically orthodox and am I deeply invested in my faith, but it's more using Christianity uh, as an identifier, as an us versus them demarcator of the in-group versus the out-group. Mm -hmm. And they say, actually, Whitehead and Perry, that it 
this word Christian in this context is increasingly being used as a kind of code word for uh, white people like us. We've used the the word Christendom positively in the past, and I think of it positively. I think it's a good thing. But um, there are definitely some places, especially in the sort of depths of the internet, where Christendom and Christianity, you start to sort of have the sense that this means something like the folk religion of white people. And I think that there's an element of that that happens in the US as well. Although I also think it's a lot more complicated than that, because I imagine that you would be able to find at least some black people who have sort of some of the beliefs of Christian nationalism as they've defined it. Yeah. So, and then how do you exactly define that, right? Mm -hmm. So these two sociologists um, looked at six kind of indicators. Mm -hmm. I thought it might be fun to, to, to do this. Everyone loves a survey, right? Okay. So one is the statement, and they picked these because there's been good testing by uh, the Baylor Religion Survey uh -huh. uh, on these questions. So there's, there's data. Okay. Um, one is the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. Okay. Second, the federal government should advocate Christian values. Third, the federal government should not enforce the strict separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. The federal government should allow religious symbols in public spaces. Uh, five, the success of the United States is part of God's plan. That's where the nationalism mm -hmm. come in. And six, the federal government should allow prayer in public schools. And uh, I just laughed when I looked at this uh -huh. uh, list uh -huh. because I, and it turns out most Americans uh -huh. are all over the map with yeah. this. And yeah. there's actually only, I believe, um, if you divide people up by strongly agree to agree mm -hmm. to, you know, somewhat agree to strongly disagree, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, only 7% of the population strongly disagrees with all six of those propositions, and only 1% of the population strongly agrees with all six of those. So uh, I guess that may, puts me, and I don't know about you, maybe mm -hmm. you belong to the elect 1% or 7%, <laughs> um, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle. And I also think that Abraham Lincoln would have said yes to each of these propositions. Yeah, and I wonder about Dr. King. So there we come to it. Yeah. Um, now I have to say, and, and I don't think we need to feel constrained by the definitions that these two authors used, mm -hmm. but they specifically discussed Dr. King and the use of the civil rights movement of mm -hmm. Christian language mm -hmm. and a language of a Christian nation in the service of the prophet's call to justice mm -hmm. and peace and mercy. Mm -hmm. So in a way, careful sociologists as they are, they've also, though, gone about defining their terms in such a way that Christian nationalism is all the bad things yeah. and everything else doesn't go under that name. And I'm not wondering if that's actually, though, a little bit too convenient for their argument. Well, I mean, you know, I'm an annoying Aristotelian. And so I'm like, what is the good thing that this is a bad version of? Like if, if January, you know, I think we can fairly say January 6th was a bad version or was a bad thing. Um, or even more, maybe even more specifically, let's go back a little bit. Let's say the Ku Klux Klan defending uh -huh. white Christian America against godless, you know, Jews, uh -huh. Catholics and black people was a bad thing. Yes. But it was Christian in a sense right. that they claimed 
the language and history of Christianity. Right. They were the knights. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was certain nationalistic mm-hmm. in the sense that they believed that there was something God ordained about the particular political and social order, the horrible, unjust political and social order of Jim Crow that they were defending. So that would be fairly called Christian nationalism. That would be called a Christian nationalism. I think that there are, I mean, I think you've sort of, to a certain degree, answered your own question. That is a bad thing. That is a Christian nationalism. That does not answer the question of whether there are good things that are Christian nationalisms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that very, you could very easily argue that um, Dr. King was a good thing that was a Christian nationalism. And Right, because again, I mean, I have no idea whether Dr. King would have said that the United States should be declared a Christian nation. However, he, in his speeches, he certainly spoke of it in yeah. terms that edge right up to there. Mm-hmm. The federal government should advocate Christian values. Mm-hmm. Well, depending on what those values are, but if you're talking about justice, uh-huh. mercy, uh, peace, uh, care for the vulnerable, that those are all uh-huh. things that, yes, the federal government should advocate. Should not enforce the strict separation of church and state. Well, um, public appeals, you know, to the, yeah. to, to the gospel yeah. in regard to matters of public policy yeah. seem to at least eat away a bit at that separation. Yeah. Religious symbols in public places. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that you can't really have the black church without having religious symbols in public places. I mean, the uh, the other option is to eliminate the black church from public life. And I'm not sure that, you know, there are many people who are not white supremacists who would really want to do that. Success of the United States is part of God's plan. Well, the arc of justice. I mean, the arc of history, history bending, bending towards, towards justice. justice. Yeah. And prayer in public schools was not actually that controversial at that time. So, yeah, I think <laughs> the bad the bad Christian nationalism we're talking about exists. Uh-huh. Is there a good version of it? We may have reinvented post-liberalism in the sense that, once again, bad things are bad, whereas good things, by contrast, are good. Okay, so what's the good form of this? And and here, you know, I also thought um, in Whitehead and Perry's book, they usefully distinguished between Christian nationalism and what used to be called um, the theocrats. If you remember back to the early years of the Bush administration um, in our extreme youth, yes, um, there was much talk of theocracy. And he says, you know, this is really a different thing. Yeah. Uh, Christian, Christian nationalists. It's much more populist, for right. one thing. Mm-hmm. And they're not actually saying that all aspects of Orthodox Christianity should apply to public policy because they're specifically carving out huge exceptions for serial adulterers and abusers to yeah. hold the highest office of the land. Yeah. Um, they're rather saying we need champions who fight for our group, right? Which we are using Christianity as a bit of a badge of. That, however, this whole terminology seems to confuse, right? Right. Because good secular liberals can say, oh, Christian nationalism, how horrible, and would that throw out both the supposed theocrats and, you know, whether you like them or not, and the super bad, you know, populists and Ku Klux Klan descendants, 
and potentially a whole bunch of other people too, like the whole abolitionist movement and the early suffragists and uh, the people who fought for the rights of those with disabilities and those who fought the eugenicists Mm -hmm. and all kinds of other people also um, go in that pile. Yeah. And before you sort of come around and say, yes, but also people who, you know, called themselves Christians were advocating for eugenics, although much, much fewer than them were fighting it, and were advocating for slavery as well as advocating for its abolition. Yes, once again, good things are good, whereas bad things are bad. And you can't use the fact of, um, I don't know, corruption to uh, dismiss dismiss the good. Having kind of done this, apparently you and I agree a little bit on defending a what some things that could be called Christian nationalism. Let's talk about the cancer in American Christianity that fully deserves condemnation and opprobrium and opposition, uh, both from outside the church, but then all the more so there needs to be from within the church in the name of the gospel itself. Because this is in fact a heresy. Right. And the language of heresy can sound kind of theoretical, but it really hurts people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it hurts a lot of people. It results in real pain. Uh, It results, you know, in writing off the suffering of people in other countries who are affected by our military adventurism. Uh, You mentioned Joe Biden's, you know, use of the prophet Isaiah's language to bless the actions of U.S. Marines and in foreign countries that did not invite us. Uh, and it, the people who are hurt are also here. It, the, the, all those excluded from that folk religion, that white folk religion um, that is defending itself, you know, defending its own power and privileges within our society. Yeah. And that has deep and, and horrible roots in American Christianity that you know, should not and cannot be denied. And actually, you know, one of the good things that's come out of the racial reckoning of the last 10 years is a greater appreciation for just how deeply rooted some of this stuff is Mm -hmm. in American Christianity. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason that so many denominations split in the 1850s and 60s. I mean, I, I tend to think that the, uh, solution to bad theology is good theology and the solution to bad practice is good practice. Mm-hmm. And um I think that it's not it's not a uh coincidence that the strongest kind of voice at least in the 20th century um in favor of a kind of public christianity and a public kind of um sort of call to America to become a Christian nation in the best sense was from the black church. I think there's something particularly kind of appropriate given our history that that was the case. And, you know, I think that God knew what he was doing. Um, that said, I, and, and so I, I guess one of my kind of suggestions towards solution, I'm not sure that that's even what we're looking for is pay attention to the tradition of the black church in trying to find a version of Christianity, um, or rather a version of Christian civic engagement that is um, both indigenously American and 
um, not, not toxic. That is not the only place that I think that can come from, but I think that is a big place. And another place, of course, is history. Yeah. And I, it's so helpful, as you were saying earlier, to just extract ourselves from the mm -hmm. peculiarities of the United States. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about big principles, look at a place like El Salvador in 1980, mm -hmm. where Archbishop Romero, mm -hmm. the Oscar Romero, the, the Archbishop of San Salvador, was in the name of the gospel mm -hmm. calling on both a repressive government mm -hmm. and uh, Marxist guerrillas mm -hmm. to desist from violence, mm -hmm. to respect the rights of the poor, mm -hmm. Uh, and very specifically, in the language of of the Passion and Good Friday, yeah. calling a people and a government yeah. to go the way of Jesus. Yeah. And you know, if that's not an example of how, in the language here, a, a government should advocate Christian values, I don't know yeah. what is. And that is also like. I've made the case that Oscar Romero is my kind of integralist. I think this is a version of Catholic integralism that actually shows the best of what it can be in the sense that, and it also shows the kind of weird commonality that it can have even with the Anabaptist tradition. So what Romero was, was a bishop. He was the archbishop. He understood all of El Salvador to be, he understood El Salvador to be a Catholic country. He understood the people that he was speaking to, both the perpetrators and the victims, as being his sheep, some of whom were acting like wolves towards the others. And, you know, with the authority that he had as an archbishop, he was commanding them, and he used the language of command, to act like Jesus towards each other, because that is the way of Christians. That is the way of the gospel. And he, this is, you know, a huge violation of the separation of church and state. Enormous. There's no way that this would be a kind of um, safe, uh, you know, secularized thing to do. But this is an appropriate, I think, um, thing that the, that is the role of the church. It is the role of the church to speak to the state. And when the state is being just, just as when the state has just laws, you know, that are, you know, based on the natural law, an expression of the natural law, rather than unjust and arbitrary and tyrannical laws, what the state ought to do when the church and her ministers command it in the name of Christ and command it correctly in the name of Christ is to obey. Like, because that's kind of what we all need to do when, when God commands us and when people command us to act um, towards each other as Jesus would have us act. And that, that seems unambiguous to me. So have we just identified the good form of Christian nationalism? Yeah, Romero integralism. Okay, I think we're agreed on that. Yeah, okay. We're delighted uh, to be joined today by Dr. Russell Moore, a public theologian with Christianity Today, a long time, uh, worked a long time with the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's given us a piece, uh, Integrity and the Future of the Church, why are so many young Christians losing faith? This is actually uh, based on a talk that Dr. Moore gave uh, here in Foxhill Bruderhof in August uh, at a plow event there and was, you know, really electrifying. It was great to be uh, with you all at the Writers' Weekend. It was a really um, spiritually enlivening uh, sort of uh, a weekend uh, for me, several days for me. 
Um, the, the main uh, point of that piece is really coming out of a conversation that I'm having multiple times a day, um, either with somebody who is, is concerned about uh, people in their own church who are walking away, or even more often, people who are right at the edge of walking away. So they, they, they don't want to. Um, and, and in some ways, it's almost like Simon Peter and John 6. Uh, do you also want to go away? To, to whom shall I go? I mean, it's that sort of tension that's taking place in order to explain why is that happening and, and how do we address that? And particularly because what I see happening is different than what I would have been dealing with, say, 10 years ago where usually if someone, and this happened several times when I was in theological education, there would be a, a ministry student who would come in and say, I've lost my faith. I'm an atheist now, or I'm almost an atheist now. And, and what I would always, uh, almost always find is that there really wasn't a cognitive or a theological sort of, of move. It was, um, it was somebody usually involved in something that was bothering his or her conscience and trying to find a way to adjust the conscience and they lose their faith in that. That's not what I see happening very much right now. Instead, the people that are walking away from the church aren't the people who are saying, I just, um, I, I'm just too educated to believe that dead people come back to life or that virgins get pregnant or something like that, that you might've heard uh, in the 20th century quite a bit. And nor is it people who are saying, I think that the church's uh, moral standards are too high and, and too rigid, and I want to, prodigal son, go off to the far country and, and, and live my life in riotous living. That's usually not what's happening. Instead, you have people who often are wanting to walk away because they believe uh, in, the, in the moral uh, integrity of the Christian faith, and they don't believe the church does. So they start to see the church as something that's uh, just another marketing scheme or just another mobilizing mechanism uh, for something else. And so I, I, I've been especially concerned about this as somebody who went through all that um, as a teenager in a different, in a sort of different um, Bible Belt ecosystem, but, but really the same thing. And so I'm really burdened when I look around and I see people who are having that same sort of struggle and they maybe they don't have the kind of support system that I had to, to bring me through it. I mean, one thing that was really striking to me in your piece is how you, you say it's uh, the struggle for many of these people is that the church doesn't actually believe what it says it believes. Um, could you break that down a little? In what sense does the church not believe what it, it claims to believe? Well, I, I think it's it's not the typical problem, which is, well, there are hypocrites in the church. I mean, people have been saying that all the way back to John Chrysostom and, and before. Uh, that, has, that has always been a, a struggle for people. And so it's not, I think, that people are falling short of the ideal. I think it's instead a bigger fear, which is that uh, what if the whole thing is just a way to gain some sort of uh, social control. So if you look, for instance, at 
um, the aftermath of, say, Ireland and the uh, sexual abuse uh, revelations coming out of the Catholic Church there worldwide, but, but concentrated particularly in that way in Ireland. And what's the, what's the response? It's not so much that people are saying, well, we're disappointed in our leaders for being hypocrites. It's that they're saying, what is this? Um, it, it's that less that they're saying, I don't think the church is the force for good that I thought it was, as they're saying, maybe the church is actually a force for evil. You know, and that's that's a different, that's a very different thing. And it's, it's very different from the sort of... Um, postmodernist relativist sorts of arguments that would have happened 15 years ago. Well, there, you know, who's to say what's good and evil? Very few people saying that now. They're saying, well, we, we understand the difference between good and evil, and we think maybe you're evil. And, we, and not only that, we have, uh, we have the receipts for good evidence that you are. That's a different, that's a different sort of reality. And what that leads to is for some people, of course, it leads to a kind of smug uh, see, I told you that these people were awful, but for many other people, it leads to a sense of, um, of terror, uh, because these are people who really have encountered something, uh, in the life of Jesus. And when they see, uh, this happening, it, it leads to a kind of almost existential crisis. You know, this has been something that, I was going back to your book from, what is it, 10 years ago, Onward, where you, you write um, about how the church, you know, and you were writing specifically then about uh, the Southern Baptist churches in the American South um, were becoming disestablished. Where no, it was no longer necessary, you know, for respectability to be a good churchgoer um, and how that might um, free churches to uh, be more uh, faithful followers uh, of Jesus. Uh, how does that, is there any uh, solution uh, in that, or wh what are the solutions to this, uh, th this problem? Well, uh, there, there is a, uh, an opportunity for freeing churches from a certain degree of cultural captivity when one removes the the cultural cachet that comes with uh, church membership, or, or even just even if someone's not uh, affiliated uh, in an everyday sort of way with the congregation, that they know what congregation to which they belong. I mean, that's been a long-standing uh, aspect of, um, well, of decreasing areas of American life. And the last gasp of that was uh, was the Bible Belt. I think the the problem is, and what uh, what I didn't really see coming uh, when I was writing Onward is the fact that there is a kind of cultural Christianity that's very different from the old cultural Christianity, which was at least in some way embedded in membership. So what you have now is a kind of cultural Christianity that is, is almost completely disconnected from the church, from the community um, in any way, and instead becomes a sort of tribal belonging that doesn't even need to have the pretense of, uh, of being churched. So you, you can look at the sort of people who um, you can see in Europe with uh, uh, Tobias Kramer, the, uh, the researcher who's been working quite a bit on these um, 
these Christian nationalist movements around the world, one of the things that uh, that he has noticed is you can go to someone in you know leading uh, a protest in France under a Joan of Arc uh, uh, sign, or someone in the Netherlands with a huge cross. You go and talk to that person, you find out this is an atheist, this is an agnostic. That's not what the cross or the or the the Christian symbolism is about. It's a way of saying we're Christian meaning we're German or we're Dutch or we're French and we're not Muslim or we're not um, something else. And, and so that's the way that they're, they're framing it. I think you see the same thing in a different sort of way in the United States context where you can have people who not only don't go to church, don't have a church they would know to go to if they, if they wanted to, but who are posting Christian memes uh, on Facebook because it's it's a it's a kind of identity that is saying i'm not it's not that i'm saying i'm affiliated with jesus in a way that i'm taking up my cross and following him it's that i'm saying i am not one of whoever the enemy is and, and this is the way that i'm i'm uh, claiming it so it's it's almost more of a way of saying i'm a in an american context i'm a real american uh and you're not or in a European context to say, we are the conservators of Western civilization and Christianity is the, is the way that we do it. Mm -hmm. So that's one of, the, one of the shifts that I think we have seen so sort of, uh, happening over the past several years. So it's sort of Christianity as the folk religion of white people and, or Europeans in a certain way. Right, and, and, and with a focus on um, where, is the, where is the enemy and so in a, in a Christian, uh, historic Christian uh, biblical view of reality, of course, uh, the enemy, um, th this would include the principalities and powers uh, of this present darkness, as Paul says. It would include ourselves in need of, uh, in need of dying to self and, and living to, to Christ. So you, you can't find this one group of flesh and blood people to say, these are the people we're we're defining ourselves against. So what this does is to essentially secularize uh, Christianity in, in very real ways, it, just as much as say the old uh, Protestant liberalism would try to do with, well, let's take the, uh, you, know, you think, of the, think of the Jefferson Bible coming in and saying, let's take out the stuff that's, that we find ridiculous, the miraculous, and, and we're left with what? the Sermon on the Mount, the ethical teachings of Jesus. Often you see sort of the almost the reverse of that. It's just you're cutting out the Sermon on the Mount and uh, leaving everything else because it's sort of a tribal identity marker. I mean, that, that it's, it, but it's the same impulse behind it, which is to, to secularize, to de-supernaturalize uh, in ways that make Christianity something useful. And I think that's, that's a temptation um, going all the way back throughout human history, there are always people who want to uh, co-opt any religion. Uh, Caesar is doing that with the, the, the pantheon um, of, uh, of, of gods in the Roman Empire. You, you see that with Pharaoh. You see that so many times where if you can, if you can take a religion and co-opt it, then what you can do is take whatever the ideology is or whatever the... Uh, whatever the interest is, and you can you can lift it 
to a level of authority that is beyond question. So that's that's always a pull. So on specifically on this topic of Christian nationalism, and I'd love to get into the the left side of this too in a little bit. But if we start with the Christian nationalist side, um, the response to what you just said, Russell, would be, I think, um, well, uh, Christian uh, Christian culture really is under threat. Um, we're losing out demographically in Europe and the United States. Um, there's an overweening, you know, cosmopolitan elite that's uh, dismantling uh, family, that's dismantling a uh, view of the role of men and women, that's uh, indoctrinating our children in schools. Um, the cultural cohesion of our communities is being... Uh, you know, diluted or, or ripped apart by uncontrolled immigration. Uh, and so we need to, uh, we need to rise in defense. We need to, 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 to stop playing along. Um, we've been, uh, you know, that there is a long tradition in Christianity of loving those who are close to you. I just read, uh, a review actually of, Christine DeMay's book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, a critical one from a self-proclaimed Christian nationalist who, um, you know, traces back to Aquinas and Augustine, the idea that we should love our countrymen in a particular way and, and defending um, that Christian uh, version of nationalism as something that's been in the tradition for a long time. So is there, is there anything to that? No, I think because essentially what um, what often these conversations come down to is who is my neighbor and uh, where are the limits of, of my responsibility? And then behind all of that, I think, is a larger question. And the larger question is in um, some words that you used in framing this, we and our. Uh, we are having a uh, demographic uh, decline or we are having... Uh, these these sorts of things. Question is, how do we define we and our? And so I thought it was, uh, I've been almost chuckling to myself for a couple of weeks because I teach on a secular uh, campus, Christ students who almost all are not Christians and, and haven't had any uh, real contact with, uh, with Christianity of any substantive level. And I had um, a friend of mine come in who's a uh, a uh, longtime church planter, urban area working in these things. And one student said, why, why do you even want to use the word evangelical uh, when it has so many bad connotations in this context? And my friend said, because most of us are in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and the North Americans aren't entitled to just change what we're called. And it was almost this moment of, huh, and you, you could almost see everyone thinking, well, I wasn't expecting that. I thought the most important thing that he said there is us, most of us, uh, right. meaning that we belong to the body of Christ, uh, which is, uh, is just as much uh, Asia and Africa and Latin America. So I think the framing of who we are and the, the sort of blood and soil uh, identity is exactly what you see going all the way back 
to Lamech and Nimrod and Cain, and what you see happening with um, uh, you, you see happening with what John the Baptist is saying. Don't say to yourselves, "We are children of Abraham," because God from these stones can raise up children of Abraham. So that that sense of seeing ourselves according to primarily according to the flesh and fleshly uh, bloodlines, especially in terms of saying who are the people who don't belong to us and therefore we have no responsibility for. Uh, that's I think uh, not just dangerous. I think it's rooted in something that is antichrist. Well, and to, to to be clear, I absolutely agree with that, um, and I'm not sure how effective my channeling of 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 the imaginary Christian nationalist was. Susanna, how did I do? Uh, I think you did pretty well. So, if that's not how we ought to be um, relating Christianity to the nation, and you know, we can sort of like fold in all kinds of assumptions about, and the nation ought to be part of a sort of an, a political expression of the of the ethnos or of the people. Um, so if we're rejecting that, I, I guess my big kind of question for you is, so what is your political theology in the sense that um, how ought Christians to be related to secular polities? Um, how should we think about the church as a polity? And I feel like one way to sharpen that question is, so you wrote this piece for us back in 2015 um, where you were talking about the problem that James is addressing when he rebukes the churches by saying, you know, for, for a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, you know, you're nice to the rich man and you sort of treat the poor man badly. And you said something really kind of interesting and pretty cool, I thought. You said that the problem was not that those church leaders were too politically savvy, like, you know, the, the church leaders, James was criticizing them for being too politically savvy, but that they weren't politically savvy enough um, because they didn't have the next trillion years in view. Um, and Meanwhile, you know, Paul is later talks about the crucial importance of judgment in the church. We are to learn to conduct ourselves with justice and our leaders need to be able to make just decisions about church discipline. And he says in this kind of exasperated way, don't you know that we are to judge angels? So those two rebukes, it seems to me, portray the church as a polity. I think the question is one of ordering and of priority. So uh, look at the analogy, uh, for instance, with the family. Uh, so you have these uh, seemingly contradictory uh, commands in Scripture uh, to say, uh, honor your father and mother. Uh, Jesus uh, from the cross is, is uh, handing over the care of his mother to John. Behold your mother, behold your, your son. Honor father and mother. And if someone does not hate father and mother, uh, he cannot be my disciple. How do those two things uh, fit together? Well, they fit together in terms of ordering and priority. So the, the only way that I can legitimately love family is by not having family in a sense of, of ultimacy, either in terms of my identity or, or in terms of the value of the other members of the family. And you can see that happening all the time with um for instance, a great deal of, uh, of trouble that I find in marriages that are falling apart. Uh, it, usually, it's not because people have too low of a view of marriage. 
uh, it's usually because they have a super high view of marriage, that this person is supposed to be my soulmate, is supposed to meet uh, all of my needs. Everything is to be this, uh, this vehicle for uh, onward and upward self-realization, and no human being can meet that. And so then there is this sense of, of disappointment that turns to resentment. Or with, uh, with children, when you have parents for whom uh, their entire self-identity, the most important thing in their lives um, would be their children, then you end up with a sense where the children uh, are disappointments. Instead of if the children are second in terms of one's uh, place in, in Christ, and the marriage is second in terms of one's uh, reality in Christ, you're actually free to, to love them uh, in a way that's not possible when they become first. I think the same thing is true in terms of our embedded communities, um, whether local communities, national uh, communities, national responsibilities. I have those responsibilities, but those, those have to be subordinate. And what's ultimate then shapes and forms the conscience as to what my actual responsibilities are. So just as with a family, you know how to if your primary calling is following Christ and being shaped by the narrative of scripture and the community of the church, you know how then to say, uh, I have to drop my nets, uh, Peter, James, John, and, and follow him, walk away from uh, family in that sense in order to follow Christ. And I know when my responsibility uh, is, to, uh, is to even even closer come in to my family responsibilities. Both of those things are true. And I think the same thing is true in terms of the nation. I'm, I'm able to love my country with a sense of uh, patriotism because I have a sense of gratitude and because I don't expect the nation to meet my needs for identity. Uh, I expect the nation to do uh, what the nation is designed to do. Um, and, and that is not to give me a sense of ultimate belonging. It can't do that. And, and we already have a vehicle for doing that. So I think in terms of the, in terms of the polity of the church, it's not that you have a, uh, a polity of the church, therefore not uh, any other polity, is that the church is the way, um, the outpost of the kingdom of God, where we are in a, uh, a, a training pattern uh, toward eternity with, with one another. That has implications for the way that we act in the outside world, because uh, we're having consciences that are shaped to know how we use power responsibly, mm -hmm. which is what I think when, when John is talking um, in Luke 3 to the uh, tax collectors and to the, the soldiers, and they're saying, you know, what do we now do? And he's, he's giving to them uh, directives as to how they are to act in terms, of, uh, in terms of conscience. What he's not giving is a blueprint for the Roman military or for the, uh, the, the Roman tax collection system. He's saying, you act in this way. So I think that the church then shapes and forms the kind of people who can carry out uh, those varying responsibilities, which are which are going to differ from person to person? So it it shapes and forms um, the archaeologist 
in a way that doesn't require the church to dictate uh, what archaeology uh, protocols ought to be. Uh, and the same thing, I think, often in terms of governance. From an Anabaptist perspective, I absolutely agree with that. And, uh, you know, I'll pull out my favorite Tertullian quote again, the early church father, uh, that in matters of religion, there can be no compulsion. Otherwise, it's, it's no longer religion. I, I want to back away from the political theology angle a bit and get back to what you were saying, Russell, about uh, how the church can retain its integrity as an outpost of the kingdom of God. Uh, so quite practically, uh, let's talk about the United States now, uh, and with apologies to our listeners elsewhere. Uh, we have an American... Uh, evangelical Christianity strongly identified with some of the very things uh, that we're saying in this podcast uh, are not truly Christian, that are uh, a sham Christianity. Uh, how do we get back, right? And there's this fear, too, on the other side. We, we criticized, um, you know, we've criticized Christian nationalism rightly um, today that the corrective may be equally bad, right? That um, a accommodation to a um, the liberal critique of Christianity uh, by rushing to uh, dismantle all the things that we think are bad um, will leave nothing left, right? And that uh, you see that a lot, I mean, quite in people's personal lives, the number of, of former evangelicals, the so-called ex-evangelical phenomenon, who don't necessarily seem to be running to a robust Christian vision, what more often happens is that they simply become uh, liberal Democrats. Um, and so what what is the path forward? I would argue a little bit with the framing of the question, because I don't think that what we're seeing are correctives to, as though these are opposite things. So the, the sort of uh, uh, Christian nationalism that we spoke about earlier, or the kind of, um, the kind of liberalizing, whether in, in terms of, say, the early 20th century uh, modernism uh, movements, or uh, what we're seeing in terms of just uh, secularization all the way out. I don't think that those are opposite things and correctives of one another. They're actually manifestations of the same thing, which is uh, to see Christianity as a means to some end. For some people, that end is going to be um, is going to be blood and soil identity. For some people, that end is going to be progress. Uh, and 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 justice and and those sorts of things, but the problem is that it is the end. So it, it takes me back to what uh, Jay Gresham Machen um, argued during the fundamentalist modernist controversy in his little book Christianity and Liberalism, which is an unfortunate title just because liberalism means uh, so many different things, especially in this context. But for him, the way he's defining it is. Um, uh, Christianity as a as a useful um, means to get to some goal. So he would give the example of fighting communism. And we say, does Christianity 
um, contradict communism? Yes. Uh, is a place where Christianity is thriving a place where communism is going to be um, uh, under uh, critique? Yes. But if Christianity becomes a means to fight communism, mm-hmm. so or as the um, as the the early 20th century Protestant uh, liberals would say, this is a way to civilize the world. Very, uh, very colonialist uh, sorts of interpretations coming from the left in the 20th century. You can uh, you can have a Christian civilization, which is going to mean that people aren't going to fight with one another. They're 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 going to um, they're going to have just labor systems and so forth. That's the point of Christianity. Uh, that's that by the time you do that, you have something other than Christianity. And so the same thing tends to happen with um, whether on the left or the right. If you have someone who says, I mean, look at, for instance, um, John Shelby Spong, the notorious um, heretical uh, Episcopal Bishop of Newark, died uh, several, several weeks ago. Uh, one of the things that, that Spong would constantly say is Christianity has to change or die. And what he meant by change is to say, take out the offensive and scandalous parts of Christianity, which would be uh, the supernatural, bodily resurrection, so and then it would be the moral demands that are out of step with uh, the, the ambient culture. You know, by the time you by the time you end uh, with with that project, you end up with almost nothing. Uh, left. Well, what happens when when people see that taking place? They know a couple of things. One of the things they know is that okay, well, this actually is just a second step to wherever the culture is going at the moment. So why am I listening to you? Why don't I just listen to the culture and get a step ahead of you? Uh, and also, the goals that you're the goals that you're putting forward Christianity as the, the way to solve, we can handle those things without giving up a, a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that's, that's happening on the left. The exact same thing is happening at this point on the right, because after a generation of uh, Christianity, uh, at least in, in many ways, presented as a way to get to uh, family values or political triumph, or uh, any of these uh, owning the libs, whatever it is, uh, you have a generation understanding that they can get to those things um, without uh, giving up a Sunday morning. So if you're looking, for instance, if you look at, um, you go to a a typical college campus and you look at a 20-year-old leftist, very rarely, are you going to find someone who is in the line of Walter Rauschenbusch and uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick and, and, and John Shelby Spong? Now, you're going to find people who are usually thoroughly secularized. And if you're talking to your typical 20-year-old on the right, you're going to find someone who is not being shaped and formed by Abraham Kuyper or even by Jerry Falwell, being shaped and formed by, say, Jordan Peterson, a Jungian, uh, or even those figures who are maybe YouTube personalities or others who might be Christians in their personal lives, but that's not uh, the mode by which they're speaking to these issues. 
uh, they're doing it in a very different way. So it all it, it all is is coming from, I think, the same place and it's leading to the same place. So the, the contrast has to be with a Christian church that is doing a number of things. And I think the most important thing and this uh, I said to someone just yesterday because I had a I had a Christian student on an elite um, uh, sec, very secular campus who said, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to follow Christ here. And I said, you know, what I'm about to say to you is going to sound like a Sunday school answer, but it's because I think Sunday school was right in this sense. And that is, there has to be an immersion in the storyline of scripture, uh, not just biblical literacy in terms of people knowing how to get, get around the Bible in order to make arguments, but a people who are actually able to see their own storylines, 1 Corinthians 10, this is who we are. So I can start to recognize I have seen these things before because I have been there as the people of God, you know, in, in, in my story. So I think that's a key part of it, and not just in terms of individual private devotion, although that's uh, certainly true also, but in terms of a church that is able to um, accomplish that, which means, uh, and this is going to sound very uh, Anglican, but I mean it more expansively than that. That mm -hmm. means a recovering of liturgy, which is, which, which is not just for high churchers, that's for low churchers too. Um, where, and by that, I mean a kind of rhythm of life within the community that is uh, is not just novelty, but is uh, stability. And so uh, when you have, I mean, in, in the church that I grew up in, one of the best things that happened in terms of, of shaping and forming people, and probably one of the reasons that I was able to make it through my teenage spiritual crisis, is that there was an ordering of life around, for instance, hymns, where there, there's a connection with a, a biblical story and with the, the broader community through hymnody and through the same hymns being sung, uh, through the uh, something as, as simple as a vacation Bible school um, for kids in the summer that had the same pattern every year so that you're starting to see your life in terms of that pattern. Uh, when, when there are uh, funerals where, I mean, we were very low church Baptist, but uh, everyone used the Book of Common Prayer for weddings and funerals, whether they knew it or not. And so when you're, when you're, at, a, uh, when you're at a wedding, uh, you're, you're hearing the same vows that you took and that you know that one day your, your children, by the grace of God, will be taking in that assembly. When you're at a funeral, you're hearing the same words at your father's funeral that you heard at your grandmother's funeral, and you know those will be the same words said at your funeral. I think that has a, a shaping power in understanding who we are. And then once we start to understand who we are, there can be a certain kind of distance uh, from even all of these temporal uh, good things that can enable us to actually carry those things out as Christians so that you're able to have Acts 17, both Paul provoked internally because the city's filled with idols. He recognizes that. And the response is then to reason 
Mm -hmm. uh, with them. Well, why? Because this isn't an existential threat to Paul. Uh, he, he's in grief about the situation of the people around him. So he, he, he's able to move. Uh, he, he doesn't go into what we often see, which is the exact, re 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 uh, exact reverse, which is to reason our way toward how to be provoked. So mm -hmm. the, the, the being provoked is itself theatrical. And, uh, and, and that's, that's I, I think that a, a church that takes seriously um, the, the sort of life that we're to have together, that's the way that we counteract all of this. So quite practically, how, how, does, how do those kinds of churches come to be in the United States in 2021? Well, they come to be by people, first of all, at the leadership level, intentionally knowing that, uh, that that's what they're setting out to do. But then secondly, it happens by coming in and showing people um, in many ways, you actually know how to do this, um, but you, you don't see how to do it in multiple areas, but there are always going to be some areas where you do, you actually do know how to do that. So for instance, um, sometimes I had someone uh, say yesterday, I just, I don't know what to do because our church is so divided politically and uh, I, I don't know what to, to do about that because you can't even start to address it without the divisions becoming uh, almost overwhelming. And I said, why don't you go in and show the people, I was familiar with this church, so I knew this was the case, show the people how they actually do know how to do this when it comes to personal, uh, personal moral uh, issues. So there are gonna be some things where the scripture's clear and they're going to say to one another, you know, we're not going to just agree to disagree about uh, child abuse. Uh, that, that's not going to be the case. But then there are going to be some other issues where we have principles that we're teaching, but they're going to, they're going to apply in different ways. So parents, you have responsibility to your children. That doesn't answer whether or not your children should be in public schools or private schools or, or home schools or what have you. And then there are going to be some things where Romans 14, we leave that to the individual conscience. You're not always going to get those distinctions right, but you have the categories there for that. Take that reality that they already know and show them how that actually does work in terms of uh, these, these social identities as well in a really similar way. And sometimes in a congregation, it works the reverse. Uh, so, I mean, for instance, um, I found it was really interesting in working in the area of human dignity that I would have an event where I would have maybe half the people there um, for whom it was easy in their congregations to get up and to, to preach or teach against abortion. People would applaud. Really difficult if they were to talk about the Kurdish refugees down the, the street from them and the responsibility to see them as in the image of God and to care for them. And then you would have someone else who maybe is a, a church planter in an urban area where it's really easy to get up and say, we need to care for the refugees in our community, but uh, there's a, a chill and a backlash if he talks about uh, abortion. Uh, well, uh, both of those, they kind of needed each other to say uh, the scripture is speaking to all of these things, 
regardless of uh, regardless of where we are in terms of political controversy. So take the concern that that your people have for refugees. Don't negate it. Show them how that actually applies to unborn children and then take the concern that these other people have for abortion and uh, and say, yes, here's the reasons why you care about the vulnerability of unborn children. That's why you ought to also care about their moms. That, that's why you also ought to care about uh, the poor uh, and so forth. So take what people know and and show them that that really sometimes things they think are alien to them really aren't. They're really in continuity, which is why there was a there was a Cato study uh, several years ago that was surprising to a lot of people, didn't surprise me at all, which said that the more evangelistic a church is, the more likely that church is to be uh, welcoming of uh, immigrants and refugees uh, involved in caring for the for the poor. So this, this sort of contrast between evangelism and social concern that we often see actually doesn't doesn't exist in in real congregations that are evangelistic doesn't surprise me why because you if you have people who are focused on mission they see the people around them not as enemies trying to destroy them but as a mission field that uh, potentially could be their brothers and sisters in christ in the future that changes the way you see people. And so showing, it's, it's taking things that already exist and showing people, here's what we're doing and here's why. Mm -hmm. I think that long-term that has, that has an effect. I'm, I'm wondering whether you'd be willing to sort of talk a little bit about um, how in the sort of, in your post-SBC life, how, what you see your kind of mission as, um, you know, you've, you've been, someone who's sort of tried to, I think, interpret evangelicals to the wider world. You've been someone who's um, represented uh, to a certain degree evangelicals in the wider world. And you've also spoken to the church. Um, how do you how do you see the balance of those things uh, working out in your in your new role? And, and just I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. In exactly the same way, because because I don't think that those are two separate tasks. I think those are in many ways the same task, because mm -hmm. what's happening uh, when uh, when one uh, speaks to the church, one is being overheard uh, by mm -hmm. the world. And when one speaks to the world, one is often being overheard uh, by the church. So what you're trying to do in, in both cases is to, in speaking to the church, to say to those who are uh, maybe with some curiosity watching in, here's why, uh, here's why this is important, that we, we care enough about the bride of Christ to uh, want to see her thriving, um, because this is, this is beautiful. And then as we're talking to the outside world to say, everybody has to do this. It's not just some people who sort of have to talk to the outside world. Everybody has to do it uh, in their communities. They're, they're speaking to people who don't under, understand them. And one of the big problems that I find is that there is this, um, this mentality that sort of comes out of culture wars 
and comes out of a kind of uh, apologetics that assumes that we're a beleaguered uh, uh, group of, of people who are, uh, who are hated by those around us, a kind of intimidation uh, that comes where Christians often think that their secular neighbors uh, hate them in ways that simply aren't true. So for instance, when I'm on, when I'm on secular college campuses, I am all the time. Atheists uh, come up as recently as, as last night. I had uh, one atheist agnostic uh, after another uh, coming to meet with me. And what they're asking about is not what do you think evangelicals are going to do in Iowa in 2024? Nobody's asking that. Uh, instead, they're asking things along the lines of, as one said, you know, I'm, I'm curious. And if this is too personal a question, and if it's offensive, you don't have to answer it. But in your view, how does a person get right with God? <laughs> and uh, well, uh, th this is somebody who isn't accustomed to having people, you know, giving gospel tracts to them and, and, and talking. So it's not even as though they're, uh, they don't feel like they're going to, like you're seeking out the pyramid scheme to say, can you tell me about your herbal supplements. Uh, it's, it's a genuine curiosity to say, how does somebody think that way? And then the person right after to say, tell me about hell. Why do you all believe in hell? And, and, and what's hell like? And how does one avoid that in your view? Well, these are, these are situations. They're not kind of Nicodemus situations where you have people who are at the point where they're, um, they're, in a state of kind of alarm about these things, but there's a genuine curiosity and openness to those things precisely because they are so strange. And even when you have hostility that's coming, 99 times out of 100, you're dealing with somebody who has come out of a bad religious background, and that's what they're really speaking to. Mm -hmm. So if Christians don't understand that, uh, that, that, Often the sorts of things that you're you're saying, um, if you come into it with a defensiveness and a kind of hypervigilance and paranoia, uh, you're actually not going to be able to make the connections with people that often they want. Uh, you know, so I, I think that is is a big obstacle for us right now. So Christian self confidence, yeah, <laughs> and or confidence in the confidence in the gospel, not in self. Yeah, Christian, yeah. Christian Christ confidence. And, and also to say, um, I, I think there's an assumption uh, because we assume that, that people change through arguments. That, and, and because a lot of just even in terms of kind of YouTube culture, even as it applies to Christians, it's a little clip of watch this apologist own this agnostic student or knock down these Hindu arguments or, or whatever, uh, when in reality, uh, that's not how people change. And it can give people the false understanding that in order for me to bear witness um, with, with people who don't, don't have any connection with this, I have to be an expert on every possible objection. And I can never say, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, well, what you end up doing, you end up filtering out 
only the people who think that they're experts in everything, which means you end up with what uh, what Kierkegaard uh, said is uh, geniuses instead of apostles. Rather than people who are carrying a, a message, you have people who uh, are experts, and that's just not how the gospel proceeds. Thank you, Russell. This has been a wonderful conversation. Well, always, always good to be with Plow and with all of you. I'm, I'm grateful to have the conversation. Mm-hmm.